The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 9, verses 2 through 13. The word of God speaks to us like this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the very word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Bryce Johnson. I'm one of the leaders here. I'm actually a pastoral resident uh, here at Frontline Yukon. Um, it's a great joy and honor uh, to join you guys and be with, here, uh, with you this morning. Um, several of you have asked already, so I'm going to go ahead and just get it out of the way. Um, I am a Texas Longhorn, and I am in mourning this morning. Uh, and I, I, I told the guys this morning, the sermon this morning is just all wrath and fury. It's just judgment of God. Uh, and so hopefully uh, you guys can bear the weight of that. Um, Hey, uh, if, if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9. Um, we're continuing this walk through the gospel of Mark. We've been in Mark for a few months now. Um, and we've been seeing this picture of Jesus, this king who declares uh, and is demonstrating his kingdom. Right? He shows up on the scene and he says, repent, uh, turn around, uh, and believe this good news that the kingdom of God is near. So we've been walking through it. We've been looking at that. And two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus asks his disciples, he shows up to him, he says, hey, boys, what are people saying about me? What's the word on the street? And disciples say, uh, you know, people think that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some people think you're one of the prophets or, uh, or Elijah. And he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And that right there. That's the most crucial question that anyone can answer, right? What do you think of Jesus? Who is he to you? And for once, Peter gets it right. Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, yeah. Uh, but then he transitions into teaching them that he's going to have to suffer and die and then rise again. I, I love the scripture says he teaches them plainly, right? There's, there's no parables here. There's no veiled language. He teaches them plainly that he's going to suffer and die and rise again. And then he says things like, hey, whoever's going to follow me is going to have to take up their cross to follow me. And whoever uh, is going to follow me is going to have to lose his life to follow Jesus. And the passage last week ended 
with Jesus saying something interesting. And it actually sets the stage for our passage this morning. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. This is Jesus. And he, being Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus says, hey, there are some of you that are standing here right now that are actually going to see the kingdom of God come in power. That won't die until you see this. And what he's talking about, that picture, is actually the story we have this morning. It's the transfiguration. It's the story, uh, Jesus goes up into a mountain, he's transfigured, he's changed in front of their eyes. And what happens is that the disciples get a glimpse of what's to come. They get a glimpse of the kingdom of God, and they get to see Jesus for who he really is. It's, a, it's, it's sort of like um, if you ever watched a movie trailer. Uh, when movies come out, you know, the, the director uh, grabs clips of the final product um, and then presents it in such a way to sort of whet your appetite and get you excited for what's to come. Um, we're used to superhero movies uh, at this point, but way back in the day, about 20 years ago, uh, before the Avengers, before uh, the Marvel Universe, you had Tobey Maguire. And Tobey was Peter Parker in Spider-Man. Um, it was a great movie, came out in 2002. Has a great line, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and, and they did a total of three Spider-Man movies. And then they were like, and the third one was pretty terrible, so they, they scrapped it. They were like, hey, let's do a reboot. You had Andrew Garfield came out. Uh, they did two more Spider-Man movies, and then uh, they were like, hey, we're going to have to reboot this again because now we've created this Marvel Universe. We're going to do a new Spider-Man. And so they had Tom Holland comes out, uh, and, uh, and he uh, was Spider-Man. And uh, he joins the Avengers. He fights Thanos. He fights some bad guys himself. Um, and, and he's got two movies. He's in the Avengers movie, and... The, he's got a new movie coming out this year, and a trailer for it dropped about a month ago. And uh, it's called Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, and so I, I, I watched the, the trailer, because I'm, 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 I'm sort of a fan. And in it, we see that, here, here's at the stage, it, it's just a trailer, so I'm not spoiling any movies. If you haven't seen the trailer yet, it's kind of on you. Uh, but but we're, we, we see that everyone knows who Spider-Man is. They know his real identity. Um, and it just causes a mess for Peter Parker. I mean, the, the government, uh, everyone's just, just trying to get after him because they know who he really is. And so he goes to his superhero buddy, uh, Doctor Strange, and he says, hey, man, uh, you can do some wiki-wiki with the time here. Can you, you know, like, get us back in time and uh, cause it to where people don't know who I am? And Doctor Strange says, okay, let's, let's go. Uh, but something happens, something goes wrong, and in the trailer, what we see is just there's a lot of chaos, confusion, this carnage. And then someone steps on the scene in the trailer, and you see him, and you're like, oh, man, I've seen this guy before. And he steps on, he shows up, and he says, hello, Peter. And people just lost their minds, right? Like, I mean, just everyone blew up because what you realize is, hey, this is, this is a villain that Spider-Man has fought before, but this is a villain from, from like two iterations of Spider-Man ago. This is, a, this is Doc Ock from 15 years ago, from Tobey Maguire, and you see all this, this interconnectedness. Um, and I remember seeing that trailer and thinking, all right, I'm ready to watch this movie, right? You, you, you got excited because you knew what was going to come. The trailer gave me a glimpse, a taste of what was to come. And that's a picture of what we're seeing with the story of the Transfiguration this morning. Some of the disciples get a teaser, a preview 
of a reality that's going to come, the kingdom of God in power. I'm going to look at the text, and the text is going to invite us into three things. It's going to invite us to see Jesus for who he really is. It's going to invite us to listen to Jesus. That's going to invite us to embrace suffering as part of the kingdom. All right? So if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter, two, or Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2, says, and after six days, so six days after, um, after Peter confesses that Jesus is Christ, six days after he says, uh, hey, you're going to have to suffer for my sake, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Jesus takes these three disciples uh, up the mountain to have this profound experience. And all through the Bible, mountaintops are symbolic for these profound experiences with God. And, and the disciples certainly had that experience. Jesus himself is transfigured. And when you, when you read the gospel narratives, it's, it's fascinating. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount it. But they're all just trying to grasp for words on how to describe it, right? One of them is like, it, it, it was like the sun was shining and his skin was glowing. And another disciple is like, it felt like lightning uh, was just emanating. And, and Mark's here is like, man, I've never seen a bleach job that good, right? Like, like they're just trying to figure out and grasp at how to describe what they've just seen. <laughs> but none of them describe it as, and Jesus started glowing, right? There's, there's something more happening here. See, transfigur transfiguration is a strange word. We, we don't really use it in our common vernacular. Uh, but, but maybe a, a better way of translating this word here uh, is by using the word transform, right? Jesus transformed. But even that is a poor way of describing what's going on because it's not like, it's not like Jesus changed into something new. What's actually happening is that the disciples get a tiny glimpse of true reality, of Jesus as he really is. They went from Jesus, seeing Jesus as just another man, Jesus as son of man, to seeing Jesus as God. It's, it's as if the fabric of reality was, was torn open and they could look behind through this and look to see true reality of heaven. Instead of Reflecting heavenly glory, Jesus is actually radiating glory. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus himself was producing light. And then Elijah and Moses show up. And maybe you're wondering why of all the Old Testament uh, characters to show up, these two show up, right? Like, what about Abraham or David or, or, or Adam, right, the, the first guy? And, and the thing is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallel, thematic parallels between these figures in the story and the ministry of Jesus. We, we see uh, in Exodus that Moses goes up into a mountain with, with, with three companions after six days, and he encounters the presence of God through, through a cloud. A voice speaks to him through the cloud. And we see that, that after Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is, his face is glowing from being in the presence of God. He, uh, Moses led his people out of slavery to Pharaoh and Egypt and delivered the law to, be, to the people to help shape their unique identity as God's people. And, and maybe that sounds familiar because Jesus frees his people from slavery to sin and death by fulfilling the law and bringing grace and truth. And then you have Elijah, Elijah who also had this mountaintop experience, 
uh, he, he experienced God's presence on a mountain, and he was a prophet sent to restore true worship, and he was sent to preach repentance to his people, and, and it came at great cost to his own life, and Jesus came as the ultimate prophet, right, preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is here, and he came to deal with our own idolatry, again, at great cost to his life. But here's the point. Here's the point of what we're seeing here is that Moses represents uh, the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And together they represent the entire Jewish scripture, all of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament has been pointing to one person, and it's Jesus. Jesus, who, by the way, is God. And the fabric of reality has been torn, and we see Jesus for who he really is. Jesus in his glory, Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all uh, the stories in the Old Testament, all the promises of God, all the laws, all the acts of redemption, everything. And this morning, I think this text is going to invite us to join the disciples and gaze upon this Jesus. And gaze upon this Jesus. And, and maybe you're here and it's been a while since you've seen Jesus like this. Maybe it's been a while since you've seen Jesus to actually be magnificent and beautiful. See, this Jesus, he's not just, he's not just some political pawn. He's not just some mascot that you rally around to, to, to achieve your agenda. He's God himself, and he's God who put on flesh, who willingly stepped into our weakness, willingly walked into creation so that we could have more of him, so that we could be restored to him. And maybe this morning... Maybe this morning what you need is a fresh look, a, a fresh view, a fresh experience, a revelation of this Jesus. And so if that's you, would you ask him for it? Would you ask him for it? Or maybe you just need, what you need is to actually see Jesus as more than just a good guy. Maybe you're not ready to say he's God. Maybe what you need uh, is, is to actually see him and experience him for who he really is, more than a teacher or the leader of a movement. Um, this Peter, who's, who's, in, this, who's in this story, he, uh, he reflects on this experience later on in life. He writes this letter uh, in Second Peter, and uh, listen to what he says. He, he, he's explaining... Um, he's explaining his witness and his faith. And he says, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he, being Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He says, hey, I was there. I heard the voice from heaven itself. And I've been witnessing that. This is what I've been sharing with you. But then listen to what he says. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What he's saying is, hey, you have my experience. I've shared what I've seen, what, 
what uh, I've experienced, but you have a more sure revelation right here. And so, friends, if you want to gaze upon Jesus, we can I invite you to gaze upon him as he's presented in Scripture. See, something, something happens as we see Jesus for who he really is. As we, as we behold him in his glory, we become like him. We become what we behold. See, the word transfigure here, uh, it's used four times in all the Bible. Two times it's used to describe the story. In Matthew and Mark, they both use the word, this word, uh, m- m- metamorphosis, uh, where we get the word metamorphosis to describe what happens here. But the other two times it's used, it's used to describe this process in which we look more and more like Jesus. It refers to sanctification. And, and in these passages, our Bibles translate that word transfigured into transformed. And so look what 2 Corinthians says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transfigured, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, as we look upon Jesus and the glory of God, as we gaze on him, as we fix our eyes on who Jesus really is, we're changed ourselves. We're actually changed more and more into the image of Jesus. Not physically, but our hearts and our character and our minds look more and more like Jesus. Frontline Yukon, here's the invitation. Would you gaze on Jesus? And so let's look upon Jesus. But the text also invites us to listen to him. Listen to him. Let's, let's keep reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So Elijah and Moses show up, and the Bible tells us Peter and his other buddies are terrified. They don't know what to say, and so Peter just blurts out the first thing that comes to his mouth, right? Moses, Elijah, Jesus are talking, and he he kind of butts himself in. He's like, Jesus, it's a good thing we're here. What do you want us to do? Should, should we build a temple or should we uh, build tents? Like, like, what do you want us to do? He's just, he's, just, <laughs> he's just talking because he's scared. He doesn't even know what to say. And can you imagine? I mean, you're in the presence of people who are kind of a big deal, right? Uh, culturally, um, theologically even. But the mistake that Peter makes is that he thinks Elijah, Moses, and Jesus are all equal. They're all on the same playing, level playing field. Right? It's, it's sort of like if you, left, if, if you left service here and you went to lunch somewhere and, uh, and you see, you get to a table and you see there, there's three NBA players there, right? There's uh, uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander of the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder. You have Steven Adams, former Thunder player. And you have Michael Jordan. Right? No one shows up and says, this is amazing. Hey, Stephen Adams, how do you have that shooting touch? Right? No one shows up to SGA and says, hey, man, how do you, how do you dunk so well? Right? 
Because when you're in the presence of Michael Jordan, who's the greatest player of all time, everyone else fades away. That's what Peter's posture is here. I mean, look at, look at how he refers to Jesus. Just a few verses ago, Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, and here Jesus is, hey, Rabbi, just teacher. I wonder how many of us do the same thing. We elevate other voices, other people, other things to the same level of Jesus, or pretty close to Jesus, right? And notice what happens after Peter speaks up. God the Father cuts in. You know you probably said something wrong when, when, when the Father interrupts you. <laughs> a cloud comes down and a voice from heaven comes out. And God says, this is my beloved son. Who? Jesus. He says, hey, Peter, maybe you're, maybe you're still on the fence on who Jesus is. Maybe you think he's just a rabbi, but he's actually the son that I love. And because he's my beloved son, I want you to listen to him. And immediately, text says, Moses, Elijah, even the cloud disappear. And only Jesus is left. See, the, the, the command to listen to him is actually the one command that we find in this passage. It's God the Father telling us to not just look at him in his transfigured glory, but to listen to him. I, I think so, so many times we, we treat voices around us uh, sort of how we treat um, sort of how we treat like our fantasy football lineup, right? Uh, you've got Jesus as QB1, and you've got Joe Rogan on flex, right? But, but Jesus is saying, no, no, no. <laughs> if, sorry, that's the last sports analogy that I've, that I've got today. If, if you don't understand that, ask someone later. Um, but we live in a world full of noise, full of information, full of voices from pop culture to social media to podcasts. We've got news, uh, the politicians, we've got influencers, musicians, books, coworkers, even our family and friends. Everyone's got something to say. Everyone has an opinion and a thought on what actually leads to the good life. Voices that will tell us about our identity and how to curate it and how to create it. They're going to tell us about money and what we should do with it and sexuality and marriage and singleness. Friends, the question this morning is, who are we listening to? Who's informing your worldview, your decisions? See, the claim of Mark 9, the claim of God is that over all the other voices, the one voice that is authoritative is the voice of the Son of God, and we're to listen to him. And I'm, I'm not sure if you know this, but Jesus has a lot to say, and it's going to be different from what the world has to say. See, Jesus is going to say that and when someone offends you, you forgive them. And when they sin against you again, you forgive them again. And then when they sin against you again, they forgive, you forgive them again and again and again and again. Jesus says that, hey, when, when you're struck on the cheek, you don't pull back to retaliate. You actually turn the other cheek. He says that your greatest satisfaction isn't found in self-fulfillment or self-expression, but it's also not found in being a teetotaler. Your greatest satisfaction is actually found in him. And the voice of Jesus is going to speak into marriage and money and anger and, and how we view work and identity. Friends, let me ask you again, what 
are we being shaped by? Are we being shaped by the voice of Jesus? Or are we being shaped by the personalities and voices of the world? Now, it's, it's, it's uh, the Apostle James will tell us in his letter in chapter 1. He tells us that listening doesn't merely mean that we hear the word of God. He says we hear the voice of Jesus, but he tells us to listen, me, to listen means that we receive and then we obey what we've heard. See, hearing is easy. Hearing is passive. You, you can come every Sunday and hear sermons. You can hear scripture being read. You can hear the songs. Hearing is passive, but listening means to receive it and then to actually walk out what you've heard. See, Jesus is Savior, but he's no less than that. He's also a teacher, and he shows us the way to the good life and the way that will actually bring you the most happiness and joy. And maybe you're sitting here and you've tried it your way. You've tried finding love your way, you try pursuing happiness your way, you've built wealth and identity your way, can I offer that the way of Jesus, his words, offer life and beauty and health and a depth that our souls long for? Listen, listening to the voice of Jesus is, it will satisfy every longing of your heart. It's also it's not an easy thing because Jesus is going to make demands of you. But it's also not easy because it's, it's going to cost us. And that brings us to the last thing that this text invites us to. This text invites us to look at Jesus, to listen to Jesus, but also to live in the pattern of the kingdom. And it's a pattern that embraces, it's a kingdom that embraces suffering. See, the disciples had a view of the kingdom of God, and it was a kingdom that came now and brought political and social and economic power now, and Jesus is about to correct their view. Look, look, at, look at verse uh, 9 in Mark chapter 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them, he being Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And disciples are questioning what it means to rise from the dead, not because they don't know what, uh, what that meant. The prevailing Jewish notion was that there would be a resurrection from the dead, but it's a resurrection of everyone on the last day, on the day of judgment, at the end of time as we know it. What they weren't expecting was a resurrection in the middle of time happening to one person. And not only that, to be resurrected means that you have to be dead first. Jesus had just told them six days before, hey, I'm going to die and then be resurrected and come back to life. The Bible says he said it to them plainly, but the disciples still didn't get it. Here's why. In verse 11, they asked him, so, so, so they're afraid to ask him about this. And so they, they, they're like, all right, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? That first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as is written of him. Here's what the disciples are saying. They're saying, hey, Jesus, I thought that Elijah was supposed to come and restore everything, right? 
the, the, the last passage in the Old Testament, in, in Malachi, it's this prophecy that Elijah would come and he would restore all things uh, before the day of the Lord. And what they're saying is, hey, hey, we, we, we know the prophecy and we just saw Elijah. He hasn't restored all things yet, so, so maybe he's going to come again and bring renewal, but, but maybe that means you don't have to die, right? And Jesus says, hey, you're right. You, you read this prophecy right. Elijah does come first. But hey, boys, talk to me about this. Scripture also says that the Son of Man, which is a term uh, the Old Testament uses for the Messiah, the Bible says the Messiah will suffer and be rejected. What do you think about that? See, track with me, the, the Messiah, Jesus, was prophesied to come to bring this kingdom of God, but also the Messiah was prophesied to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And what Jesus is showing us is that the way he brings the kingdom is through suffering and persecution and being rejected. That's how the kingdom operates. He says, oh, by the way, Elijah did come. John the Baptist. And that's exactly what they did with him, too. They treated him with contempt. He suffered. They murdered him. See, the disciples had a hope and a plan for the victorious, powerful kingdom of God to come and to dominate its enemies. And what Jesus just did was reframe their whole view of the kingdom of God. It's actually one that accomplishes victory through suffering. It's a kingdom that comes through death. It's a kingdom where suffering actually brings, uh, uh, suffering actually brings restoration. Not by politicians and laws, not by all our good deeds and efforts. And in case you haven't already noticed, the transfiguration on the mountain is actually sandwiched between two instances of Jesus teaching not only his own death and resurrection, but also the pattern of suffering and hardship for those who would follow him. It's the way of the kingdom. Friends, the gospel is that Jesus dies for our sin and then is vindicated in his resurrection to bring the kingdom in power. And so this is why when Peter rebukes Jesus, he says, hey, you don't have to die. <laughs> Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you're setting your mind on the things of the world. You're listening to the voice of the world that says, hey, there's got to be another way. Another way that doesn't involve suffering and death. But the call to follow Jesus is also a call to expect suffering and trial and hardships for the sake of Jesus. It's a call to be unbelieved and maligned and persecuted for righteousness' sake. Many of Jesus' teachings, um, not all, but, but many of them were once viewed generally positively in our society, right? But they're being increasingly viewed, not just as regressive, but as harmful. And so when we listen to Jesus and strive to walk in obedience, there's a fair chance you'll be treated with contempt. Uh, this week has been amazing. Several times the Lord has brought 1 Peter 4 to my attention. 1 Peter 4, written by this same Peter, who experienced Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, who had this conversation about Elijah says this in 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's what Peter just said. He said, hey, don't be surprised when suffering comes your way as if, as if it's something new, as if it caught God off guard. But rejoice when you suffer for Christ's sake because you're getting to actually share in his suffering. And his glory is being revealed as you and I suffer for his sake. Listen, when we share in suffering and when we listen to the voice of Jesus and respond as he told us to, not with retaliation, but with love and grace. When we follow the example of Jesus, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, the glory of God is actually revealed in us. And maybe you're sitting here thinking what I've been thinking this week. I can't do that. I can't respond in love and grace when I'm maligned. I, I can't respond in graciousness at the ugliness I see on social media. The answer that scripture gives us is you are right. You and I can't. Just try, you can't. But like I said earlier, Jesus is a teacher, but he's also savior. See, not only does he die for your sin and for my sin, and not only does it bring victory in his resurrection and usher in the kingdom, but he also gave us the power by his spirit that is in work for all who trust in him. He gave us the grace to imitate him, to obey him. But it takes weakness to actually admit that you, you can't do it on your own, that you need him. Just like, just like you and I couldn't save ourselves, just like we couldn't bring the kingdom and power on our own, we can't suffer well on our own. I suffer terribly on my own. But the cross and resurrection, the Holy Spirit grants us the grace to live in the pattern of this kingdom. Jesus walks down the, this mount of transfiguration and eventually goes up to the Mount of Crucifixion. And there, instead of white, shining white clothes, he's wearing no clothes because he's been stripped in shame. Instead of being surrounded by Moses and Elijah, he's surrounded by two criminals. Instead of being covered in a cloud of the glory of God, he's covered in darkness. Instead of hearing the affirmation of the Father, he hears the Father's silence. And he descends to death and takes on sin and shame and death so that we might have resurrection life, so that we might experience life in the kingdom, so that we might experience this fullness that he's promised. Friends, can I offer that you can trust him? Would you turn to him? Would you look upon him? Would you listen to him? Would you learn to embrace his kingdom? you ask him for the grace to do that? Would you bow your heads with me?